Sunday night, Rick Trotter and I went down to Horn Lake and we met with about 15 to 20 people who were starting a multi-ethnic, multi-class church in Horn Lake. And it was on a Sunday night at about 6 o'clock, and they had dinner together and then uh, met. And, and when it was my turn to get up and just address them, I got up and I said, I want you to know that this is the most powerful and, and most important thing happening in Horn Lake tonight uh, because you have no idea what God is going to do uh, through this body because the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. And it excites me to, to hear Chris give an account of our history and to think back on those days when uh, before we were meeting at South Main and uh, when we were just gathering uh, people that would have a vision for something that didn't yet exist. And to stand here now and to see this body and uh, to see what God is doing is exciting. But, but here is the danger. You see, those people gathered because of a vision. Uh, they didn't gather because we were meeting in Central Station by the farmer's market and because we had um, a worship leader and, and all these things. They just gathered because they were willing to see something that didn't yet exist. And here's the danger about this stage in the life of downtown church. It's that we would stop believing God for things that don't yet exist. And so what we must do constantly is, is tell us that this is not the end zone. <laughs> Glory is the end zone. And we have a mission and we have a vision and we, God has blessed downtown church and we must use the blessings of God to leverage whatever strength and influence He has given us for the welfare of the poor and the oppressed and the needy and the lost in our city. And if we don't do that, then we have failed. It doesn't matter how much money we have in the bank. It doesn't matter what buildings are being built. It doesn't matter how many people are coming to different ministries. None of that matters. And so I want you to hear me that you may have thought that Chris and I were going to tell you kind of the five-year plan and, all right, we're going to have a building on this time and we're going to have a youth director on this time. That's not what we're doing this morning. What we're doing is we're telling you who we are so that we can go be who we are when it's time to build a building, if it's time to build a building. You, do you see the difference? It, when we hire a new person or we increase our staff, you'll understand the kind of person that we must hire. <laughs> it, it's not somebody that, that fits other models. It's somebody that knows downtown church, that is downtown church, and can help us be more of who God has made us to be. And so, friends, that's why we've come to Micah 6, 1 through 8. We're, we've got many plans and many things looking forward, but if we aren't who we are and who God has called us to be, then it's all worthless. So let's go now to Micah 6. And what's unfortunate is that we can go back to the 8th century B.C. and preach a message about the vision of downtown church <laughs> because we just don't change a whole lot. And we need to hear the message that the people of God in the 8th century B.C. needed to hear as much as they needed to hear it. And we need the same gospel that was proclaimed to them. So let's look at it now. First eight verses. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. And, and notice this courtroom. God is, God is calling His people into a courtroom setting. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains, the mountains of the jury. Let the hills hear what you have to say. 
Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. So here's the Lord, you know, bringing his accusation, his indictment uh, upon Israel, upon the people of God. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. His lo- he is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Have I burdened you? Answer me. You can imagine the silence. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember, remember, remember. With that shall I come before the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for their sin of, uh, of my soul? And then Micah answered, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Father in heaven, we need your grace to be a people that stops dealing with you as if Jesus has never come, as if somehow we can barter with you, as payment for our sins and our past life and our present sin. Father, I pray that we might realize that You have redeemed Your people through the finished blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be a a people, men and women, boys and girls, who would embrace the gospel of Jesus so that we might, in the power of Jesus, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with You. Oh God, would You make us a powerful force in Memphis, Tennessee and beyond. Would You do great and mighty things and may this morning be one of those moments that maybe we can look back on years from now and say we were reminded and we listened and we didn't stiffen our neck and we didn't harden our heart, but we said, yes, Lord, and we move forward as one body. Oh, God, would you do that by the power of your Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up just across the bridge over in West Memphis, Arkansas. And uh, really the first part of my life. And I had an older brother, seven years older than me. And I say had because he is is no longer alive. Uh, But when I was about seven or eight, and he in his mid-teens, he would always retreat to a house in our neighborhood. It was just one of those houses. I hope that every neighborhood has one of those houses, that the door is always open, that, that the children of the neighborhood always seem to, to, to move toward. It was a place where children felt welcomed and they felt safe and they felt loved. You see, the mother that was there throughout the day would play board games, chess and backgammon and checkers. They had a pool in the backyard and there was always food on the table. And my brother would go there, but I was too young because I wasn't his age and I wasn't part of that crew. And I just remember, you know, some days he would have to take me because my mother would make him because she had to go to the store or something. And I just remember being a part of that community, just getting a taste of it and thinking, 
Oh, how I wish that I could be a part of this. I want you to listen to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Oh, what a day. Take us there, Lord Jesus. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, till you shall it come, the the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Do you see what's going on? You see, Micah is calling God's people back to be a people and a community that the world wants to be a part of. And he is, he is foreshadowing a day. He's looking forward and he's saying, one day, someday, indeed, God will come and He will be with His people on the mountain and the whole world will gather around. Everyone from every nation will come together for one purpose to say, oh, we want to know you. But friends, Israel, between that time and the time of, of fruition, was, were to be the people of God that enticed the world that God was worth it and good enough to want. And that's what the mission of downtown church really is. That's it. God is calling us to be a community that is so full of mercy, that is so for justice in our city and beyond, that so walks so humbly with God, that the world looks at that and says, I want to be a part of that. I want to know this God and I want to know His laws and I want to know how I can be a part of that because I'm not and I know it. Are we that kind of church? What I love about this passage is that what we see is God dealing not so much with an individual but God dealing with a people. And that's a message that we need to hear today. Because, you know, in our day, and and especially in our society, you know, we have so individualized relationship with God that we don't think corporately. 
We think individually. We come to church and we sit in our little block of a chair and we think, okay, what is the application to me today and let me go live my life? As opposed to, what is the application to us? And so we feel lost in the world. We go out and we try to live and and we try to be faithful and we feel like, what impact am I making? When in fact, the, 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 the plan of God is not for you so much to make the impact, but for us to make the impact. We have to make that, that paradigm shift. It's us that God is talking to, not just me. The millennial generation, um, which is really what we're made up of at Downtown Church for, for you know, the overwhelming majority, you guys want to make an impact. Your parents, the boomers, my generation and older, wanted to make money and have power. You want to make an impact. And what I, what I want to tell you this morning is I know a lot of you struggle with judging your parents. But what I want you to hear is this. You can be just as self-consumed and self-focused wanting to make an impact in the world as your parents were self-consumed and self-focused wanting to make money and have power in their, in their sphere of influence. Because it is not you making an impact, it is us making an impact. And we have to get that. I was doing premarital counseling last week with a couple in our church, and the young man said this. It was, it was brilliant. I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't want to give him the big head. Um, but it was really brilliant. It, it was one of those moments where I thought, that's huge, that's big. He said this. He said, I realize in getting married that I'm making a decision, a conscious choice and a conscious decision not to make as much of an impact in my career as I would as a single person. And he said, my whole life I've longed to make an impact through my career and leave my mark on this world. He said, but I know that I'm sacrificing that to a large extent because I know that I can't be of the husband I'm supposed to be and a father that I'm supposed to be if I choose to make an impact, the kind of impact that I dream about. And I said this, I said, here it is. You need to shift it just a little bit more. You're moving in the right direction. Your impact is going to be you getting married and having a family and having a marriage and a home that the neighborhood wants to be a part of. There is nothing in, in our community that changes things more than a husband and a wife and children who love God and whose love of God overflows to the streets around them. Because what we need in our day are, are, are tons of those kind of families living in neighborhoods all over Memphis, Tennessee and all over this country. Because that will make a bigger impact than you leaving your mark in the realm of education or health or uh, politics or whatever it is. And that's the point right here. We together can make, as we decentralize us as individuals, and yet lift up God and His mission and what He wants us to do, when we do that, then His fame spreads, not uh, our personalities. The one thing, or one reason why I'm so excited this morning to be sharing uh, this sermon with Chris is because I hope this becomes a normal thing. I've always hated, well, I hadn't always hated, uh, 
<clears throat> but it's always bothered me that our churches are so leader-centered and personality-driven, and it's typically the personality of the man standing doing the preaching and the leading. And so I feel like we've even got to change that model. Because that is not, we are the people of God. Not me, not Chris, not you. Us, together. And the impact on the culture will be us. And what is that impact? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. So how do we do that? How do we do that? You see, we do that by being committed to a non-negotiable. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel, repentance, and faith is the power for downtown church to be a church that glorifies God. Do you hear me? The gospel, gospel repentance and gospel faith is the power to take us from, from being self-centered people as a church and as individuals to giving our lives away to those around us. And you say, Richard... Is that really in the text? And I say, absolutely, it is all about the text. And here it is. The Old Testament people of God were being sent prophets over and over and over again, and Micah was just one of them. But the message of the prophets was very simple. Repent and turn to the Lord because you're going in the wrong direction. You have forgotten and you've abused the blessings and the mercies of God and you're moving in a wrong direction and you need to repent and you need to look at God and remember His great deliverance of you. And so that's precisely what we have um, in this passage. God was judging His people by giving them over to their sin and by allowing other nations to come in and to take over. The northern kingdom had already been invaded by Assyria. And the southern kingdom was being threatened by the same. And 120 years later, they would not get this message and they would be invaded uh, by Assyria. And, and, and so what Micah is doing is he's taken the first five chapters to bring the indictment of their sin. And, and it can all be summarized in this. Basically, they were taking advantage of each other for their own benefit. They were bribing the judges so, so the wealthy had power in the court system um, to bring a sentence that favored the wealthy. And they, the, the preachers of the day were just preaching for money, and so they would just preach whatever the people wanted to hear. So whatever the, kind of the, the normal trend or the cultural trend, whatever was kind of in in the day, that's what they would, that's what they would, they would preach. If you go back to chapter 3, and uh, verse 11, that's what we read. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And the prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? In other words, aren't we God's people? No disaster will come upon us. In other words, all those people out there preaching sin and redemption and turn from your wicked ways, they're just not as intellectually strong as we you know, we need to pity those people who still think there's right and wrong and God is holy and He has wrath. Oh, come on now. We're all good. We're good before the Lord. That, that's exactly what Micah said was going on. And yet notice that what Micah does is he, he calls Israel to come back to loving mercy, doing justice, and walking humbly with God. Now, why is that? It's for this reason. 
When the church is steered away from gospel repentance and gospel faith, the consequence is that God gives them over to their own sin and to, you know, the, 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 um, the enemies of the world. But Israel is not the only one that's suffering, but the world is suffering. You see, God just wasn't upset because His people weren't being faithful and believing the gospel. He didn't just want them to, to come and repent and, and go sit under their fig tree and live life and say, oh, me and God, I'm psychologically healed now because my shame is done away with and, 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 and my guilt is done away with, so now it's me and God and I can feel good about me doing whatever I want to do. No. What God was doing is He was saying, look, I want you to be centered on the gospel so that you will live a life of mercy and reconciliation in the world and so that you will fight for justice for the oppressed and the poor and so that you will have relationship with God and walk humbly with Him. And so the consequence of not believing the gospel is not just personal, that we just live in guilt and turmoil and we're always trying to, you know, to find ways to appease God, but it's that living a life, trying to think of a way to appease God, diverts us from doing the very thing that God has redeemed us to do. Namely, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God in the world. Do you see that? It's beautiful. And so... What God is calling us to do is this, remember. In every, other, in, in, in every other court setting, here's the way it goes. Arraignment, conviction, sentencing. And that's how most of us think God deals with us. You wicked sinner, come into the courtroom. Come on, let me, let me give you a good tongue lashing. No. Look at what he does. There's arraignment, there's conviction, and then what does he do? Verse 5. Excuse me. Verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. He starts detailing the great deliverance of God's people by him. He says, he doesn't say, okay, now go to your room and feel guilty. He says, now turn your face to the fact that I am a God of grace. With the world, it's arraignment, conviction, sentence. With God, it's arraignment, conviction, forgiveness. And that, my friends, is the power to make us a merciful people that do justice and walk humbly with Him. If you don't get that message of the simple gospel this morning, and to the degree that you don't get that you don't get that message, it's to that degree that you will know nothing about mercy. You will do no justice in the in this city or this world. And walking humbly with God will seem like something that's just foreign to you. Because what you're doing is you're seeking to relate to God on the basis that any other person has ever tried to um, uh, relate to God outside of His personal deliverance through His Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we see that in these verses. What shall I come before the Lord with and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? I mean, that's taking sin seriously, is it not? Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'll take my child. I'm so sorry. You know, God says, I'm not impressed with your sacrifices. Because here's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says, here's a system, here's how you get to God and get in good graces with Him. This is what you do to get that. But Christianity says, here's what God did to get you into good graces. And His name is Jesus Christ. And so once you understand the reality of His great salvation, that indeed all those who are in Christ are now declared righteous in Christ, that our sins have been washed away and there's no need to do penance, that Jesus has come and He's lived under the law in our place, so that now we are not under condemnation of having to be live perfect lives before the, the law to somehow get in good with God, but Jesus has already done that. When we get that, then our whole paradigm changes. And so, friends, the gospel is the power of God to make us the people and the church that He's called us to be. Do you have the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you understand what I just explained? Is salvation for you by grace through faith alone? If not, receive Jesus. Because when you do, then your life begins to change. And now Chris is going to talk about one of the things that happens when you embrace Jesus and this gospel of grace. sequence of questions and then the Lord through Micah announces in verse 8 he has told you O man what's good and what does the Lord require of you and what he's saying in a sense is you should already know this stuff I've told you this before one of the ways he told us and he told the nation of Israel is in Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through 13. Listen to this. It says this. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He's saying, you know this. I've told you this before. So here they are. They have a representative from the nation of Israel asking, what shall I get? You know, I've told you already. So one of those things Micah shows us is that God is asking us to love mercy. He's asking us to love mercy. Verse 8 begs the question, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? Some translations say love kindness. The Old Testament was written in a language called Hebrew, and in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for mercy is hesed, hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. 
The interesting thing is that this word occurs 245 times in Scripture. And of, the, of, that, of those 245 times, the word hased occurs 127 times in the Psalms. What does this mean? King David wrote the majority of the Psalms. King David is the second king of Israel. So when Micah says to them to love mercy, to love said, they've heard it before. They know exactly what he's talking about. They've heard it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And they know very well what the said of God is. And that's why Micah throws this at them. This word denotes God's faithful covenant love. And when you think of a said, think of God's unconditional grace and compassion. This idea of loving mercy, it is a disposition of the heart. It is an attitude more than it is an action. It is the very fuel that propels doing justice. And Micah is saying, he's saying, delight in God's unconditional, loyal, faithful love. Would you delight in those things? Psalm 90 helps us with this same idea. Psalm 90, 14 says this. David says, satisfy us in the morning with your hased. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. See, that's what the Lord requires of those that belong to Him. He requires that those that are marked by grace through faith, that we understand that God's compassion, that God's loyal, that God's unconditional love is greater than anything else. That's what Micah is pointing to. When we understand that God fully knows us, that God not only knows the things that we do, but that God knows the things that we think. When we understand that we are fully known by God, but yet when we put our faith in Him, He loves us unconditionally, that's said. The God that, that knows all of our faults, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, but yet He lavishes His love on us anyway. said. God's unconditional, loyal, faithful love. Don't miss this. God's unconditional love says, Though you and I were unlovable, though we were despicable and unforgivable, God loves us. See, when you and I understand this, get this, we are free to forgive others. When folk that do us wrong, when folk that turn their backs on us, when we get wronged by other people, when we understand the chesed of God, the reality that He unconditionally has loved us and forgiven us and has lavished His compassion and grace upon us, when we understand that, you better believe we'll forgive other people that have wronged us. When we understand the chesed of God, if, I show, I, if, if, if you tell me to show you a person that understands the chesed of God, I will show you a person that is easy to forgive. They forgive easily. That's what the chesed of God points to. Um, I think about the story of Hosea. 
And Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament, minor prophet. And Hosea um, heard the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to Hosea and said, I want you to marry this prostitute. Go out and get this whore and you marry her. And this woman begins to leave her husband after marrying him. And she's going out to other men. And Hosea is pursuing her. And he's going out to reach her. He's going out to extend his love to her. And that's what the Hesed of God is. And you know what? In that story, we are not Hosea. We are that prostitute. We're prostituting ourselves out to the things of this world. And God reaches us, He he pursues us, and He loves us anyway. And Micah says, downtown church, if you want to know what God requires of you, He requires that you be a person who loves, who delights in the unconditional, the loyal love, the compassion of God. Hissa said. That's what He requires of us. That's what He's asking of us. And you know what that does? If we become a church that values the unconditional, the the loyal, the, the compassion of God, the city will notice that. The city, people in South Bluff Homes, people in West Memphis and Marion, people in Midtown, people on Bluff Homes. If we become a church that understands the chesed of God and we extend it to other people because it had been freely lavished upon us. If we become a church that does that, this city will take notice. That's what God requires of us. To be people who delight in the chesed of God and who give it away, who give it away, and who give it away. Wow. I mean, I I think the same can be said with justice. Um, Barbara Jordan, who was a civil rights leader, said this. She said, if the society today, and we could put in church... (laughs) allows wrongs to go unchallenged, the impression is created that those wrongs have the approval of the majority. Now, let me read that again. If the society today allows wrongs to go unchallenged, the impression is created that those wrongs have the approval of the majority. I want you to know that I grew up in a Christian world that didn't teach me how to do justice. Um, so I've had to learn what it means, and I'm still, believe me, I, I'm, I'm not even a fr- I mean, I'm like in pre-K, you know, trying to understand justice. But that's really where we all are. Um, because the church, about 50 or 60 years ago, did a horrible thing. During the Civil Rights Movement, when African Americans were rising up and saying enough is enough. When, when they were saying, we are men too, we're human beings too, and we're being treated less than animals. Here's what the majority, the overwhelming majority of the church did. They ran from this whole idea of justice 
And they changed the mission of the church to um, doctrinal knowledge and personal evangelism and world missions. Why? Because to stand for justice, to stand on the side of right, would have meant tremendous consequences. It would have meant that we walk by faith and not by sight. Because if we are just walking by sight right now, then we know what's going to happen if we let people of that color into our church. We're going to lose money. The powerful people in town are going to stop coming. And so the church has been on this rampant mission of having... Conferences on doctrine, conferences on evangelism, conferences on world mission, while Memphis has become the poorest city in the nation. Rachel and I have been keeping our grandsons, uh, Braden's three and he's almost four, Bennett's two. And Braden's a big boy. He was off the charts on every growth chart that they had, his head, his legs, his weight. He's a big boy. And uh, because of that, his little brother Bennett is, is tough as nails, but he's much smaller. He's a year younger, but he's just smaller. He's not off the charts on the growth scale. Um, so when Braden and Bennett play, I mean, Braden is like this giant, you know, and he doesn't mean to hurt him a lot of times, but he just, his energy, I mean, he runs into my legs sometimes, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and he's three years old. He's like a linebacker and has more energy than, he's got the energy of a three-year-old boy. <clears throat> One thing that I feel tremendously responsible to do is to teach him that God has made him strong. And he must use that strength for the good of his younger brother. That he can't be a bully. That when he's on the playground, and I've seen him do this, a, a girl will take a toy from him and, and he'll want to hit her. And boy, I mean, I'll grab and His parents do this too. I can only speak about my experience, you know. Uh, but I'll, I see it coming. I mean, you know when, you know what's about to happen. And no, 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 you don't ever hit a girl. What am I teaching him? You use your strength to protect others, not to conquer others. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, defines doing justice as this. Being concerned about the most vulnerable, poor, marginalized members of our society and making, get me, making long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interests, needs, and cause. Do you... See, here's the thing. We can't say, well, we don't understand justice. We don't know how to, you know, economic change. We just don't understand how it all works. And, and I don't know what it would mean. All you have to do is get this. However God has made you strong, however God has made you wealthy, however God has made you whatever, you are to leverage that for the good of somebody weaker than you. Yes. You are to look at the poor, the oppressed that are caught in systems that they can't get out of. You don't go along with the chorus of the world and say, well, you deserve to be there because you just, you just need to go get a job. Well, try to go get a job when you have a felony on your record. Try to go get a job. You see, we think, uh, I say we, white, middle, upper class, thinks, well, you go to jail, then you have a free start. No, you don't. You go to jail and that follows you till the day you die. And nobody wants to hire you. 
And so you go to jail, you become a believer, you want to get a job, and you can't get one. And maybe you can't read. And maybe you, you haven't obtained the, the skills because of um, the, the, the environment and the culture you were in growing up, and you just never got there. So what do we do with 20 and 30 year olds that can't read, have a felony on their record? Ah, sorry for them. God says, that's your burden, church. That's your burden. That's not the government's burden. That's not the government's burden to go create a program. That is your burden. Because what you do is you stop and you love your neighbor as I have loved you. The reason that, that Micah says remember is because when we remember our story, if, our, if we have a story, let's go back to the very first thing I said. You must have, an, have experienced salvation with Jesus Christ. Because if you haven't, then you don't yet have a story. But if you've experienced salvation with Jesus Christ, then you should know what it looks like to be treated not as your sins deserve. You should know what what it's like for the God of heaven and earth, the one who has every right not to show us any mercy, but who has shown us all mercy by sending His own Son to be the very object of His just wrath and anger so that we might now be children of God. And if that story is real to you, then you and you alone have the power to do justice in your neighborhood and in your city and in your country and in your world. Because just as, as Chris was preaching about mercy and has said and how we must be a people of peace, how can we be this, this, this forgiving people? I'm telling you, when you try to do justice in Memphis, Tennessee, you're going to get mad. You're going to come to the end of yourself. Because it's hard. You're going to get mad at the justice system. You're going to get mad at the government. You're going to get mad at the people, your friends that you're trying to help. You're going to get mad at other people who don't get what you're getting. You're going to get mad. But here's what you have to remember. God has not treated me as my sins deserve. He's not mad at me right now. Therefore, I can't be mad at anybody else. And so, do you understand that the church and only the church has the potential to be the most effective justice, let's say this, community of justice in the entire world? Nobody else has the power that we do because we have a story of justice. God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Yes. But He has lavished on us the very mercy of Christ. Now, I want you to hear the... Really, all I'm going to do is read these verses. He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but He frustrates the ways of the wicked. God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself is not a, that is not accompanied by action is dead. Go to Genesis 18, 16 through 19. Go to Job 31, 13 through 22. The people of God, the very characteristic that God expects us to be defined by is the very issue of justice. Uh, as we round third and head for home, or as we prepare to dive into the last piece of Gus's chicken, the last piece of goodness, um, God is asking us to walk humbly with Him. To walk humbly with Him. Again, verse 8, we get this question, What does the Lord require of you? To walk humbly with our God. The, the idea of walking humbly is to walk carefully, uh, to, to, lead, to live how God would want us to live. And the definition here is to be lowly, uh, to be submissive, and to surrender to God. Yes, I said the S words. <laughs> Submit. Surrender. And so often that's such a hard place for us to go. Because deep down inside, we only want to submit to ourselves. Mm. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to anybody else. We have husbands who don't want to submit to God. We have wives who don't want to submit to their husbands. We have church members who don't want to submit to church leadership. We don't like submission. Mm. We don't like submission. But yet, this is exactly what Micah is calling us to saying walking with the Lord has to include coming to grips with our need to submit to the living God. Walking with God is us bowing down to God's supremacy, to God's might, to His Lordship, and to His power. The crazy thing is that so often we look at our walks with Jesus as a burden or something that we have to do. And I think what Micah is saying here is we ought not look at our walks with Jesus as something that we have to do, but rather something that we get to do. We get to be walking humbly with God. We get to do that because of God's said, because of His mercy that He's lavished upon us through His Son, Jesus. We get to be in relationship with Him. We get to do it. And I love that God makes things personal in our passage here. Look at verse 3 with me. He says this, Oh my people, what have I done to you? Did you hear that? Oh, my people. Then look down at verse 5. He says, Oh, my people, remember. God makes things extremely personal. You can almost feel the emotion oozing off the pages of this passage. The passion is definitely here. Oh, my people. God is more than some abstract being. He is a personal God. Think about um, if you're in a dating relationship or if you're, if you're married. Uh, you ever been in a situation where um, your spouse or your significant other, uh, they were talking to somebody of the opposite sex? And you noticed, right? You're standing right there and they're, maybe they're having this in-depth conversation with somebody of the opposite sex and you, you kind of perk up a little bit like, hmm. Okay. So 
So, when are you going to introduce me? That's what you're thinking. Oh, you just forgot I'm standing here. Oh, you is the conversation that good, huh? But I, y'all ain't never experienced that before. I'm I'm gonna talk to this side. I'm, but then, then it hits your spouse or significant other, and all of a sudden they say, "Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, this is my wife." Woo. And she's like, "Mm-hmm." Um, uh, no, she, uh, um, yes, or this is my husband, and, and, and he kind of tries to hold it in, because, you know, he's a little, he, uh, yeah, makes his voice a little deeper, I, how, how you doing, um, but makes it personal, this is my wife, this is my husband, this is my significant, and that's what we see here in this passage, God makes things personal. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. This isn't some abstract, far-off God, and you will not find this in any other major religion. God of Christianity, He is a personal God. He's got a personal kind of love. He's got a personal kind of compassion and a personal kind of mercy. He is a personal God. We see that here. God makes things personal for us. Um, I remember growing up, and uh, the youngest of five, y'all know a bit of my story. And so as the little brother, I have to act how little brothers act. And so I have to get on my older sibling's nerves all the time. And so, sometimes I would get on my brother's nerve, I would be picking at him or doing whatever it is that I did, and he would pin me down. He'd put his knee in my back, and he'd grab my arm, and he'd twist it behind, and he'd say, surrender, say I quit, say, say I give up, say you, say you quit, say you give in. And obviously, you know, he wasn't doing it that hard initially, and I, never! <laughs> Then he'd tighten that grip a little bit. <laughs> say you quit. Say, 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 you, say you quit. Say you surrender. I surrender. <laughs> I give up. I quit. This is what we see here. Mike is saying, for you to really walk humbly with God, it's going to take some submission. For you to really walk humbly with God... It's going to take some giving over your rights. If you're really to walk humbly with God, it's going to take some submission. And the God of the Bible is not twisting your arm, but He is freely handing out love and mercy and compassion and a chesed kind of loyal love. He says, walk with me. Learn of me. Grow with me. Know me because I am a personal God and you will find no one greater. Learn of me. Come, do life with me. He's asking us to give in. He's asking us to get, give over not just our stuff, but He's asking us to give over our whole selves, our hearts. That's what He wants. 
When Micah says, walk humbly with God, he's saying, give over your whole self. And you want to know what the vision of downtown church is? Is that over and over through these doors would come people who have not met Jesus and that who would meet Jesus and who would give over their whole lives to Jesus. And they would submit to Him. And He would be Lord. And that you would come in this place, those that are of the faith and who know Jesus, that you would come in this place and every week that you would be reminded of God's grace and His love and His compassion for you through the cross of Calvary and through His resurrection power, that you would say, God, all over again, I surrender to you. You are a loyal God. You are a faithful God. And God, I surrender to you. God, I give over to you. God, I submit to you all over again today. Would you rule over my marriage? Would you rule over my dating relationships? I submit those to you, God. Would you rule over my finances and the business deals, God? Would you rule over my lack of a job, God? Rule over that. I submit even that to you. Humbly walking with the Lord because there is no greater joy than to humbly walk with him who gave his only son to pay the penalty for our sin let's pray Father thank you that you indeed paid the penalty Lord you can require of us doing justice and loving mercy delighting in mercy And you can require of us to walk humbly with you, God, because you submitted, you forgave, and you did what was just with your only son, God. You gave him up. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the gruesome death that we could never die. And He was raised again with all power in His hands. God, we thank You for those realities and I pray that we would live in them today. That we would run to them for our very hope, for our very satisfaction. Father, would you build downtown church to be a place that values those things. I pray that we would be a sanctuary of justice, a sanctuary of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with you, God. We pray that by your Spirit you would make those things true. We pray as well, God, that you would bless these tithes and offerings that you're about to receive. We pray that you would bless them and that you would multiply them and they would go for benefit of your kingdom in Memphis, Tennessee, and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.